Last week, uh, we discussed some things uh, out of John 12. If you want to turn there, John 12, where we've been for a little while, and uh, uh, have a, uh, want to try to get out of there one of these days. Uh, <clears throat> however, I will tell you that John 12 is this last section. Jesus will leave dealing with the crowds in John 12. He will then re, uh, recuse himself, if you will, and be only with his disciples. So there are some things that Jesus is saying in John 12 that have profound, I think, uh, understanding and impact for his ministry, his life of what he does. Because at J John 12, 36, Jesus leaves the crowds. And the next time we see him, he's with his disciples only. And then the next time we see him, he's uh, at, at, uh, in the Roman or in the Sanhedrin being tried and going to the cross. So uh, th that's why this, I think, has some uh, bearing on us making certain that some of the things that Jesus is saying, uh, we, would, we would take some attention to it. Now, last week, uh, I did ask some people with Socrative, and I got several responses uh, to that about this idea about uh, the notion of God's sovereignty. And I suggested to you, this is, uh, I tried to give both sides to the, to the deal and let you uh, kind of come to some conclusion, uh, knowing that Christians have been discussing this for about 2,000 years. Uh, and even before that, even Jewish uh, people uh, would try to discuss what is the nature of God's sovereignty? How much control does God exert in the universe right now? Uh, with human beings. And I suggested, and I, I, it's not really a play on words, but it is an attempt to get at the point that as I read scripture and as I study tradition and as I deal with reason and look at experience, by the way, that's called the quadrilateral. Uh, I highly recommend it that whenever you're trying to deal with truth, uh, that you run it through what we call the quadrilateral. Scripture, tradition, what have other Christians believed over the centuries, you know, uh, reason, it, what, how do, can we use our mind in this? And then finally, experience, does it seem to, to be uh, true and accurate and those kind of things? I mean, I, I, I believe the Bible is the basis for all of our understanding, but I certainly want to consult uh, other Christians and what they believe. They may be a little smarter than I am. Anyway, last week, uh, uh, thank you for not saying amen on that. I, I was anticipating. Um, uh, there was a couple of, there, there was a stream of thought that I want to just touch on that came out of Socrates because I appreciate you uh, doing that. And when I had made the observation and my suggestion is that God is not in control and that he is not managing and making everything happen that's happening, but God is in charge. And we talked about God's exhaustive sovereignty? Where is he exhaustively sovereign? And where has he limited his sovereignty? Where has he decided that in giving human beings a measure of free will, that the kind of universe that it seems to me that God wants, and you know, I'm, I'm trying to analyze here, and uh, the kind of universe that God seems to want, where he has seated or in his own sovereignty, given human beings a measure of freedom, is he wants a universe in which love is possible. This is not that God just wants human beings to have free will. That's too small. That's too narrow. It's not that God just wants human beings to have free will. God apparently wants a universe in which love is possible, not guaranteed, not something that God can guarantee that everyone will use their free will properly and will love him. That's certainly, if we go to the quadrilateral, uh, reason, experience, and scripture tells us that. So uh, that's the kind of notion I've been working with. And I say it this way, that I believe that God is not in control, but he is in charge. Uh, the image I've used before is a basketball referee 
that uh, a referee cannot control basketball players, but he does retain the right to run the game. And so he is in charge. God will determine when the end is. God determines the matters of salvation. We talked about his exhaustive, if you will, sovereignty here where he refuses to release any control in that area. And I might say, uh, just by a historical point here, just to say, and we're going we're gonna to move on. We're going to talk about some little thing called election today later. So, you know, we're just hitting all the high points. I'm either going to, well, forget that. Um, if we get there. I want to suggest you something historically. This comes out of reason and history. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things uh, that was occurring in the, in the 16th century, when uh, a good deal of what we call the Reformation is occurring, and a, a, what would be considered kind of a heightened understanding of God's sovereignty really begins to come to the fore through Calvin and Zwingli and Luther and Bob and... Uh, no. <laughs> I was, I was always hoping there was a theologian named Bob. <laughs> you know, it's always Demetrius or Diogenes or, or you know, Ignatius. It would be cool to have a Bob. Um, in, that, in that 16th century, let me remind you uh, that Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and uh, many others are attempting to reform the Roman Catholic Church. That in their thinking and understanding owns and controls salvation. If you are excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century, you are lost. You do not have any access to salvation. It is administered and given and doled out, if you will, by the church. And Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin, in my judgment, correctly although again, I have some concerns, correctly located salvation and sovereignty in God, not the church. That's what they were arguing against. That's what they were working toward is to say, where does salvation reside? Is it the church that can give it and then take it away? Or is it God? Where, who is sovereign over the matters of salvation? Is it the church that can give it or take it away? Or is it God? And so I have a lot of reference for, for Calvin and Zwingli and Luther and those gentlemen because of their commitment to try to wrestle this thing back to understanding that it is God who is in fact sovereign over salvation. It is God who is in fact sovereign over, over the universe. And uh, although again, I, I would say, and if you want to look at some Anglican sources, I can get you there. Anyway, here's a question that came up that I think warrants a response. Uh, understand the difficulties of life. Uh, so some have suggested in, in, the, in, the, in the deal was that is what I was talking about, about God not being in control, but in charge, is that more accurately understood as the permissive will of God? The perfect will and the permit. Anybody heard that statement, the permissive will of God? Uh, it might be that if you're interested in that, there's a great book. It's classic. I think it's still in print. I have a copy. You can't have it. And, uh, you know, those are some things that I have. Like books. Like we went on our, on our trip to Florida this year and Colorado. I, I was having to leave clothes out of my suitcase to bring books back. You know, because I, you know. Went to Glen Erie and I, you know, I bought $100 worth of books in the first four minutes, you know. Um, but it's a great book, and if you can find it, I'll loan it to you, but you'll have to sign a name and leave a deposit. It's called this, uh, The Will of God by Leslie Weatherhead. The Will of God by Leslie 
Weatherhead. He really is one of the guys that kind of started this notion about the, permit, the perfect will of God. What does God want all human beings to do? And then the permissive will. Now, let me give you just a little bit of, a, of an analysis on that, and then I'm going to move on to something else. Um, it, it's a classic. I mean, it, it, in theological circles, it's not real big. It's not real thick. So, I mean, you don't, you don't have to worry too much about that. Um, but it, it is interesting when people use that term, the permissive will of God. I would suggest this, and just for your thinking, and you know, you don't have to agree with me, and not everybody does. I think that God permits everything. You know, silly, you don't want this. I could tear my shirt off and stand up on that thing right there. Of course, a couple people try to stop me, but right? I can drive down the wrong side of the highway if I want to. I can uh, be unfaithful to my wife if I want to. I can steal money from the school if I want to. I mean, this idea of God's permissive, well, he, he really has ceded to human beings something that's both very powerful and could bring about much good by creating love. But he's also brought about that human beings can do basically anything they want to. Now, there's, there is responsibility there, judgment. There, there, there will be an answer. See, that's why God's in control. He's in charge. There'll be an answering to that. There'll be a dealing with that. But to me, it, it, use a good old East Texas, it sort of gums things up for me when I just think, well, that's God's permissive will. When, I ha- when my reading of Scripture, my reading of theology is God, God allows everything. He, he'll let you do anything you want to do with your free will. Is that, is that, does that sound accurate? Does that seem right? Does that, I mean, the Scripture, like God is not, you know, Willing that any should perish, but people are. That's not God's will. He don't want people to perish, but he allows them. Okay, second thing, real quick, and then we're going to move on. Uh, one person said that this was a little disturbing, and I knew that, and, I, and that always troubles me a little bit, about how it might affect their prayer life. You know, I, when I was a pastor, I remember a lady coming to me and saying, I am praying that my husband will get saved. And I said, I am too. Praying that God will work on his heart and that God will draw him and that he'll respond. But the person said, well, I'm just praying that God will make him become a Christian. I said, well, I don't think God can do that. Again, you don't have to agree with this. I'm just trying to roll this out. God can't make people do things. And that's where I think in prayer, for me, this makes prayer more important. That I am participating. I'm, I'm involved with God in prayer. I am standing, and some would say, in the gap here, praying and asking God not to do something he doesn't want to do, but say, and I wrote in my notes this, I said, it, it may, it's a reason to pray and participate. You know, when I pray in these kind of things, sometimes I'm asking God, do I need to do something? You ever do that? Or do we just pray? <laughs> You know, I'm just going to pray for this person to get saved instead of asking, do I need to go talk to them? Should I, should I act in some kind of way? Because prayer becomes that great participation. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's this matter where Jesus told us, in, if you want to go look at it, Luke, Jesus said that you should always pray and not lose heart. Remember the, remember the story about the widow who needed justice from the judge? 
And she goes and appeals to him. And after her what? Persistence. Persistence. The judge hears her. I'm reminded of this quote from Oswald Chambers. He said, prayer does not prepare us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer doesn't prepare us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And I'm reminded, if you look at it later, in Colossians 4.12, where Paul is talking about Epaphras, who is praying for the folks there in Colossians. And he uses this word, he said, that I remind you that Epaphras is struggling with you and for you in prayer always. That Greek word there is interesting because it says this, that Epaphras is agonizomai. What does that sound like in English? Agonizing. Agonizing. Well, I told you last week, you know, I, and I, I, don't, I don't assume that my experience is what ought to be everything, and I don't expect everything that I hear, but, you know, I just heard one time when I was praying, uh, you know, about something for about 24 seconds. The Lord said to me, Cliff, this will get more important to me when it gets more important to you. Ouch. You know, how do you, how do you pray for a person that's got a terrible disease and you pray for 24 seconds and think, Prayer doesn't work. <laughs> Prayer doesn't work, see? I pray. And I'm not, I'm not trying to get us into some kind of legalism. I'm just simply saying that prayer seems to be participation. Jesus anticipated this when he said that you should always pray and not give up. And through this widow's persistence. So I, I, I know this adjusts some of our thinking and it may adjust some of our behavior and may cause some disturbance in our minds. But again, as I go through the quadrilateral of scripture, reason, tradition, and experience, I say, this makes sense to me that I can't hang all the bad things in the universe on God and say it was just his will. Remember Romans 8, 28 said, God causes all things to work together for our good. It doesn't say God causes all things. Not all things are caused by God. He causes all things to work together for our good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God doesn't cause all things, but God can cause those things to work for our good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Because I've seen, and you probably have too, that some things happen to people and it destroys them. Some things happen to other people and it strengthens them. Generally, the difference is, as my dad used to say, this wonderful poem, it's not the strength of the gale, but the set of the sail that determines a man's life. It's not the strength of the gale. The strength, it's not the strength, but the set of the sail to say that in those circumstances and in those situations, I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to look to you. So anyway, those are a couple of things, and we probably are going to get some more today. And uh, I, I just, I leave that for your thought and uh, Okay, yeah. So anyway, okay, uh, big issue, big area. Listen, I, I can't fix it. I can't say, you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to agree with this. I, you're you're going to find yourself in one or two of these areas here of where you're going to have to determine how much control does God exert now in the universe in which we live. And uh, I, I know this can be comforting to some and... Uh, disturbing to others. Uh, but I have a pretty strong understanding, I think, of human freedom, of what it can do and what it does. And I've seen it over the years, people that uh, 
would say, you know, why doesn't God stop him from doing that? Because this person has a measure of free will and God is not going to stop him. And uh, that, that's why we pray. That's why we seek, seek God. All right? <laughs> I hope. Here we go. We're moving on. Conversations with Jesus here. We're uh, adjusting to reality. Kind of. Hey, I got to tell you a funny story. Last Sunday, when we had Bluegrass Sunday here, anybody here? Yeah. In the in big church, not the venue. Who's, you know, if y'all are in the venue, we, I'm talking about big church. <laughs> in the sanctuary, that's big church, not the venue. No, that's that's not big church. Last week in big church, <clears throat> they had bluegrass music. And it was like, you know, we went to the Grand Ole Opry. And we're in, they got a banjo. And when I lived in Kentucky, they called it a banjo and a mandolin. I, I'm not at a fiddle. Yeah, and a guitar. Guitar, that's how you. I, I was, uh, I was, we were there. We were singing these great little songs. And all of the sudden, it dawned on me. I've been singing Do Lord wrong all my life. I'm standing there going, no, no, that, that, listen, when I was in ministry, we went to, in bus ministry, we used to sing, do Lord, every Sunday on the bus with the kids, oh, do Lord, oh, do, you know, I played my guitar on the bus, we're singing. Now, I grew up in East Texas, and I heard it and remembered it this way, do Lord, oh, do Lord, oh, do you remember me? Charlotte's saying that with me because she grew That is not the song. I'm like, it's do remember me. And I'm thinking, I've been singing this wrong all my life. And I've been teaching it wrong all my life. And I'm looking at that going, it's not do you remember me? <laughs> How many of y'all thought it was, do you remember me? Thank you. Thank you. Okies and Texans. I couldn't believe it. I, I literally, I tweet, I, I tweet, I, I don't try to do that in church, but I thought I got to put this down. I forget. I said, I said, singing wrong all life at crossings. Do you remember me? Hashtag growing up in East Texas. <laughs> there, I, it was stunning. Really, I'm serious. I'm going, huh? It was stunning me. I thought, I have a doctorate. <laughs> I've been in the church all my life. I've taught Sunday school. I, I led children's church. I've been in big church. <laughs> the reality of it. Man, oh man. The, the, the reality sometimes of things you go, and I'm just, I, I, all week I've been thinking, what else do I not know? <laughs> right? Maybe I should just quit teaching right now. You know? Some of y'all are saying what you just talked about is what you don't know. Anyway, adjusting to reality. Um, this happens all the time in life if we're alert. And in this passage here, I'm, I'm seeing Jesus make some adjustments. And here's what I want to see this first adjustment. I'm going to start reading at verse, uh, tw we talked about verse 31 last week, verse 32. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men or all people to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death that he was to die. 
The crowd then answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ, that's the Messiah, Mashiach, is going to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Who is this person? And so Jesus answered and said, for a little while, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things he spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. This is the mark right here. This is it. It's over. It's fascinating. me. I just want you to mark in your Bible here. We're going to come back and pick them up. It's fascinating to me that there are three terms here used, really, that are Messiah or Messianic. And here's the, here's the adjustment. It's adjusting belief about the Savior. Adjusting belief here about the Savior. There are three terms here. In, 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 when I'm reading it, you know, I'm, I, Chris and I in our Bible study it, it thing we do, we say, you know, in studying the Bible, probably the questions you have are either related to, to some grammatical issue, like, you know, what this word is or what's this verb, or, or history. There's some history here. And what you have is three terms here. Really, uh, 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 the idea of, of, of Savior or, or, or the, the Redeemer. One is Messiah. That's the easiest one there when it says in verse 34, or Christ. That's the Christos. That's the Greek transliteration for Mashiach or Messiah. It's same, it just means, okay, the word Messiah means anointed one. Mashiach in Hebrew and in Greek, it's Christos. It's the, the anointed one. So it's the Messiah or, or the anointed one. And then in verse 34, the son of man. This is the term that Jesus used most often about himself. More, more than any other term, the son of man, the son of man. And then down here in verse 35, for a little while you have the light walk that, you, that the darkness may not overtake you. You have the light. Uh, in, in, in some literature in the ancient world, um, there is this understanding of the sons of light, the son of light who's coming to destroy the works of darkness. Now, this particular understanding comes out of a, a, a community down by the Dead Sea. You know, that's back behind Terry's house. And uh, he's got a map for it. In the Dead Sea was this group of people called Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S, -E -E Essenes. They were very conservative they had left Jerusalem because they believed the priesthood and all those had been so corrupted that they left. And they believed that the sons of light would come and deliver them from the Romans and the oppressors. So this has some re reference to the Qumran community of, of the idea of the, the sons of light. The, 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 they will come and do battle with the sons of darkness and, and, and uh, take over. You know what? I, 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 when I read this, I realized that what it looks like is that there is some confusion here. There, all of these terms that are oscillating and, and, and going around, that, that, that this idea of, the, who, you know, if I be lifted up, Jesus makes this statement, then I will draw them in, and they're going, wait a minute. We've heard that the Messiah will be here forever. And, and that's the idea there. I wonder when I write, write my notes here, I, there is no comprehension in the Jewish mind, it appears that the Messiah could die. He's going to come and clean house. I mean, 
You know, he, he is that one who, who comes to, to fix everything and set things straight and work the political system out and, and get things ironed out. Where in the New Testament, the Messiah seems to be the one who wants to come and rectify and change the hearts of people. And so they're confused. They say, wait a minute. I thought, so, so I thought, well, do they, do they not have any notion of resurrection? Now, the Sadducees don't, but the Pharisees do. That's why they're sad, you see. You're, okay, Everett is stealing my material. That's right. Smarty. Yeah, that's why the Sadducees are sad, you see. They believe in no resurrection or angels or the afterlife. Stealing my material. Um, and so, uh, but there is no notion of resurrection with their Messiahship. So, so they're saying, wait, this, this can't happen. You, he can't die. You know, this is, again, some confusion about their part. The son of man. The son of man. This is the one, remember, in Daniel chapter 7, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar looks down into the, the oven, he sees the fourth one who is as a son of man. And this also is this uh, figure that comes to deliver, this supernatural figure that comes to, 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 to deliver and, and to, to, to get them out of bondage. The problem is up to this point, and even the sons of light, the sons of light are going to do battle with the sons of darkness. You can read this in the Qumran community, in the Qumran ma uh, manual. You know, wouldn't that be a great group to live with? You know, the, the, the manual of discipline. All of this suggests, if you will, that there needs to be some adjustment to their belief about their Savior. That, that, that what they believe is what they need to be is they need their circumstances changed. They, they need the Romans kicked out. They need things to be adjusted. They, they need to get back in power. See? And this Messiah comes to say, no, 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 I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm coming to lay my life down. I'm going to deliver you on the inside. I, the, you know, the circumstances never changed for any of those people. Just a few weeks, we're on a lunar calendar, so I kind of missed it this year, but the 9th of Av was last weekend. I don't know if you, you knew that, if it's on your calendar or not. The, the 9th of Av, probably not. Um, but it's the day, it's, it's the most sad day in all of uh, 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 Jewish history. On the 9th of Av in 587, the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and all those guys. On, in 587... What's, what's fascinating about this is that on the 9th of Av, which often falls around the 9th of August, but because they're on a lunar calendar, it's different. The 9th of Av is also celebrate, or also remembers that on August, or the 9th of Av, in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Do you know on two different times on the same day, 600 and something years apart, this place is, 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 is brought to the point of rubble. They have the idea that it, the Messiah has got to deliver us from our circumstances and bring about some new order for it to work. You know, sometimes we, we struggle with that, don't we? we? We think, well, if things would get better or this person would be in power or this person wasn't in power... You know, we, we, we think all, and you've heard me say this before, but I can show you again that the gospel works under every political system known to man and thrives. 
doesn't require any particular, it's more comfortable in some, which I'm thankful for, but it thrives. Jesus here seems to be, he's got to help them. Under, look, I'm going to, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be lifted up. And, and the word here means the idea up in death. They're, they're going to, they're going to, their, their confusion is, wait a minute, how will this fix our problem? Because they don't understand the problem. If you want to look at this in one sense, in, Paul really gets after this in, in Romans chapter two, when he says this, that the real circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. And he is a Jew. Now listen, Paul is defining Jewishness here. Okay. This has some real implications. if We're not careful. He is a Jew who is one inwardly and not outwardly, who has circumcision of the heart. See, the Jewish people are confused about their Savior because they don't understand what He's going to save them from. Their heart, their inward situation. They're confused about Him. They, they don't understand Him. And I, and, I, and I wrote in my notes, I thought, you know, do I ever get confused about this Savior, about what He wants to do? See, I think this Savior should be basically concerned about my comfort. Anybody with me on that? I am. Listen, I don't like suffering. I got sick yesterday. Becky said, call somebody else to teach. I said, boy, you're pretty quick on that. I said, no. Terry Bradshaw played in a Super Bowl when he had the flu. I don't have the flu. Everybody's, no. We, 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 we want, and, and I, you know, it's part of our humanity. I'm okay with that. I don't like being sick. I don't like suffering. Like that. But you know what? God's greater work, God's greater work. I, I was reading in Romans 5 again when Paul says, for we rejoice in our suffering. For suffering produces endurance. And produce, endurance produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Now listen, that's Romans 5, 1 to 5. Hope doesn't disappoint us because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I know people who have perfect health and all the money they need, but don't have the love of God shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. I believe, and I've not had a lot of suffering. You know, Becky's been sick. I, I haven't. She'd been sick of me, but, you know. <laughs> and, you know, I'll, I'll let you carry me and talk to me when this happens. I believe if we know the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we can go through anything. And I'm telling you, with the best doctors and all the best insurance in the world, if we don't have the assurance that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, it's a racking, scary thing. I'm not trying to minimize suffering. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm just saying that Jesus seems to be more concerned about what's going on in us than what is going on to us. I'm not saying that if you're in a terrible situation, don't go to the doctor, or if you're in a terrible situation where somebody's being violent, get away. I, I, I'm not, you know, you, you know me, I hope you know me better than that. But this is inward. Henry Nouwen wore me out one time when he said, the reason we want power is because we don't want to do the hard work that love demands. Love is hard work, guys. You know that. 
The reason I want power is because I don't want to have to do the work that love demands, that suffereth long. I, and and I'm, not, I'm not trying to sign up for, for uh, suffering or difficulty. But these guys are confused about their Savior. One of my favorite verses, I'm going to... I've been ill. I'm on medication, so I don't know where I am today, actually. But <laughs> Matthew 11. Matthew 11. This confusion about adjusting belief about the Savior. I, I, I've been told all kinds of stuff that isn't true about this Savior. And when I read this years ago, and you've heard me say, but I'll just give it to you again. In Matthew 11, Jesus has been teaching and preaching and ministering. And John the Baptist is, uh, is in jail. Herod decided, okay, after he made the big, big spill, I'll give you half of my kingdom. John the Baptist is now in jail. The great fiery preacher with if there was ever a guy who said, I know what I believe and you ought to believe it too, it's John. Pharisees come out one day and they're looking at him and said, who taught, told you to escape the destruction that's coming, you bunch of snakes? Not a seeker-friendly church here. <laughs> Just blistered him. And when he saw Jesus coming, he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He said, I saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove. Now, you know what, guys? Jail has beat the certainty out of him. Jail has beaten the certainty out of him. And he asked this question. He sends his disciples in verse 3 and he says, Are you the one? Expected one is a messianic title. Are you the one? Or do we need to look for somebody else? That to me is one of the most staggering verses in the New Testament. You know what, guys? If we don't understand that Jesus is trying to do something in here, life will beat the certainty out of you. Why did this happen? Listen, I went to church. I tithe, you know, we, we just start going through all this stuff. And I don't think we're attentive enough to people. I don't think that we're compassionate enough to people to say, look, man, life can beat the certainty out of you. This guy saw the Spirit of God descend on him like a dove. This guy said, he upon whom you see, this is the one. This is the guy that said, oh, no, 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 you, I don't need to be baptized. You got to baptize me. How certain was he? Dead on. Didn't have a question. Knew it from the, he was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. He's the last Great prophet of the Old Testament. Jesus said, there's no one greater than John. Look what happens. 
Jesus answers and says to him, go report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lepers walk and are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have the gospel preached. Now, you know what? That is exactly different than what he thought. Go read John's message. What do you say? Hey, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will separate the wheat from the chaff. That's what we call... And by the way, when he says, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit, I'm going to do a different translation here for you because I'm telling you, I think I got reason to. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit or fire. Not and fire, or. The Greek word kai can only, let me tell you why. Because he says, he will baptize you with the Spirit or with fire because his winnowing fork is in his hand. And what do you do with the chaff? He says, you burn it up with unquenchable fire. This is eschatological judgment. Use that word at lunch today. <laughs> Just practice it. John doesn't think things are going to get better. He thinks eschatological judgment is coming and Jesus is fixing a clean house. Why? He's still a Jewish guy. He's still confused about the Savior. This is not what he expected. See, see, the answer to that is this. Are you the expected one? Or should we have come? Here, here's the answer to that. Yes and no. Sounds like a lawyer, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, I'm the expected one. No, I'm not acting like you expected. Jesus ever done that to you? Not ever acted the way everybody told you he would act? Or this happened to me, so it's got to happen to you? Look what Jesus said. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. You know what that means? Blessed is he who doesn't get angry and mad at me. Because I'm not acting the way you expected. You know, these Jewish guys got that problem. Guess what? So do we. So do we. I mean, I, listen, I, I've told you this before, but, you know, when some of my friends were ill, I kept saying to God, you know what, you're really missing a great opportunity here. I don't know if anybody's informed you of how great this would be if you would just get up, heal them, and get this done with. Right? Anybody prayed that prayer? I keep thinking to him, are you not watching down here? Hey, it's okay. Read the Psalms. Understand that this guy doesn't always act the way we think he should. This is what their problem is. Wait a minute, the Messiah is going to live forever? Who's this son of man and the sons of light? Man, they're coming to clean it up. Three messianic titles. He doesn't fulfill any of them the way they thought. This Messiah comes to die. This son of man really experiences life as a man. Think about that. This Messiah dies. This son of man really experiences life at the dregs. He gets it all. And this son of light comes to reveal 
the truth about God. Not to wipe the Romans out and get them all taken care of, but brings the light of God's presence to say, here's the reality. Oh, he's fulfilling it. Not like they thought. Does that make sense? This is the thing we don't talk about a lot. This, this one that we're confused about. Part of my training in theology has in many ways been to unlearn what people have told me that isn't true. This isn't true. I mean, it's, it's hard to have to unlearn. Now, now notice what, G, and I, boy, I'm, I'm way long on time. I'm going to let you out someday. And, <laughs> he comes back to this. If I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to me. What I want to make sure happens in my life, in your life, is that we get drawn to the real Jesus. To the real one. And I'm not saying you're not. I'm saying we all probably have areas and things that we need to get adjusted. But to be drawn to the real one. I think we need to have more compassion for people. Marty has said this on times. There are a lot of people that are rejecting Jesus that are just rejecting some. You know, we ought to ask from now, which one? Is it that everything's going to work out great and everybody's going to be well and their children are born with straight teeth, Jesus? Is it you're going to be wealthy and everything's going to turn out great, Jesus? Is it that your kids will never break your heart, Jesus? You know, which one is it? The real one who comes as a Messiah who dies. A son of man who experiences the dregs of reality. And the son of light who comes to reveal the truth about you, the truth about me, and the truth about God. Well, that's half of this first point. <laughs> but man, it's important. You might want to read Philip Yancey's book, Disappointment with God. It's a little hard to read. And it's a little hard at times to give people permission to say, hey, I don't get you sometimes. I, I don't understand why you act the way you do. Now, I, I know people, they're going to say to me, Cliff, you know, where's the victory? Well, the victory is that Jesus wants to change in here. My circumstances may never change. Listen, you better get real. You better get reconciled with this. Your circumstances may never change. They may never change. But we have the hope and the understanding that this Messiah comes to change on the inside. I've told you before this, but it's fascinating to me. You know, back in the Cultural Revolution, I had a friend who was a doctor that got ran out of China uh, years ago. I mean, a long time ago, the Cultural Revolution. And there was some estimate that at that time there were about 2 million Christians. They took role, I guess, or, you know. Two million Christians, and they all had to go underground, and they lived under an oppressive, terrible circumstance. And it cost them to follow Jesus. And when things began to loosen up in the 90s and the early 2000s, when the church came out from underground, 
there were 20 million Christians. Their circumstances didn't change. But the reality of a Jesus who's a Messiah and a son of man and the son of light revolutionized them. Now there are over 20 million and there may be more Christians today. Some of the researchers in missiology are saying, that there are more Christians today being converted to G- or more people coming to be followers of Jesus in China than any place on the earth. So I say, let's lift him up. Figuratively, let's lift him up. Let's quit talking about things and circumstances, all that. And I'm, I'm, again, I'm not suggesting you don't talk to people, don't get help, don't get encouragement. But let's lift him up in our lives. Let's talk about him. Let's give people a dose of reality to say, your circumstances may never change. But your Savior is more than able to change us on these. I tell you, what I've been praying for me, I just and I'll shut up. People say, my prayers have finally been answered. (laughs) (laughs) This passage in in Romans 5 has really been working on me. Where Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This grace in which we stand. And not only that, he said, but we rejoice in suffering. For we know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces a character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint. Here's the, here's the, and hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Listen, what you need and I need is what the Savior can give to pour out the Holy Spirit, the love of God into our hearts. If I have one need that I am very aware of, is that the love of God would be poured out into my heart through the Holy Spirit. Anybody else with me? That that, that that ability to endure and deal with difficulty and deal with trouble. He says that we have difficulty. I, I tell my students, it says, he, it, it's Paul, I say, you sound nuts. When he, when he makes this statement in five, I want to read it, just make sure here for you. When he says, and not only this, but we exalt and rejoice in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit to whom He has given to us. It's internal resources we need, not just changing our circumstances. It's internal things that we need. And, and, and that's where these guys got to get adjusted. That's where we have to get adjusted. Who is this Savior? So I'm going to pray for us. And I'm just going to pray for you and me <clears throat> that uh, God's love can be poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Hey, you know what? I could talk louder than anything can sound in this room, all right? Y'all Relax. Relax. Come on. I, always, I like it when little kids start yelling. I can over talk them. 
Don't you think you're going to get me done, buddy? This is my room. Just relax, okay, everybody? Just relax. Jesus is bigger than that. Jesus, we uh, need you more than we can even say. Some of us, uh, our circumstances are good. But you know what? We still need you because sometimes we, we find that we think that you're about things that you're not, that it's just our comfort and our ease and our, our pleasure. And when things are good and when things are going well, we, we need the love of God to be poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And we can't do that. But you said that because we're right with you by faith that we can endure and go through struggles and problems not because we have a lot of willpower, not a lot of grit, but because we have the perseverance that occurs where Paul says because the Holy Spirit's been poured out into our hearts. There are other people in here, Lord, whose circumstances, as Chris prayed this morning, whose circumstances are tough who feel like at times they're like, John, are you who you said you are? Or is there somebody else? Lord Jesus, I pray for those who feel the weight of circumstances, situations that test their very being. And I pray now In the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you'd make us all open vessels for you to pour out the love of God into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We pray this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, I got half of that done. I mean half of the first one. I mean half of the second one. I ain't worried.